This is the Mahabharata Podcast, Episode 18, Arjun Slept Here. Last episode was kind of short, but that was mostly due to the structure of the narrative. An incredibly fateful decision was made to divide the kingdom with almost no deliberation. We're told that the city of Kandavaprasta was renamed Indraprasta, and that the new capital was large and wealthy. We are not, however, given any details on how the region was transformed by the new settlers, or exactly how the city was rebuilt by the Pandavas and their followers. Looked at on the largest scale, one can see that the chain of events leading to the war at Kurukshetra hinged on a series of bad decisions. A brief list of these decisions would start with Bhishma's decision to swear an oath of celibacy so his father could remarry. The second crucial decision was to pass over Dhritarashtra and make his younger brother Pandu king. The third decision was Pandu's resignation, and even more importantly, the decision to crown Dhritarashtra king after his younger brother had resigned. The latest in this list of crucial decisions was Dhritarashtra's division of Hastinapur and coronation of Yudhishthira without making him heir of Hastinapur itself. What all of these choices have in common is that almost no deliberation is described as having taken place before these decisions were made. The text does not even comment on the significance of these decisions at the time they were made. For instance, in the question of who should be made king after Shantanu, the text simply says, Dhritarashtra did not succeed to the kingdom because of his blindness. Vidur did not because he was a half-breed. Pandu became king. We find out much later that Dhritarashtra greatly resented this decision, and sometimes blamed his own bad choices on this initial injustice. Yet it is described in an oddly passive voice, where we don't even know who made the decision. Presumably, Bhishma made the choice, since he was regent at the time. He certainly would have had the final say, so he should have been responsible regardless. I do not recall Dhritarashtra ever accusing Bhishma of this, but perhaps Bhishma's fatal loyalty to his blind nephew stemmed in part from guilt over this decision. Pandu's resignation and the subsequent coronation of Dhritarashtra is even more opaque. I was unable to even find the point in the text where Dhritarashtra became king. All we know is that by the time the two brothers were having sons, Pandu was in the forest and his older brother was king. It is completely unclear when, why, or how this exchange took place. But if Pandu had only made Dhritarashtra regent in his place, rather than resigning completely, there would have been no question of Yudhishthira becoming king on his father's death, and Dhritarashtra would have been powerless to prevent it. In any case, King Dhritarashtra divided the kingdom and gave the lesser part to the Pandavas, making Yudhishthira king of Indraprastha. With Krishna's help, the wilderness was settled and the capital outshone even the Kaurava's capital of Hastinapur. At some point, the sage Narada, the same Narada who involved himself in Krishna's affairs so many times, appeared at the court of Indraprastha. Ever-virtuous Yudhishthira got up from his throne and gave the seat of honor to his guest. Draupadi had herself ritually purified and presented herself to the sage, respectfully touching his feet and modestly waiting on him. Narada pronounced blessings over her and then dismissed her. Once Draupadi had gone, Narada began advising the brothers on how they should share a single wife while avoiding strife or conflict. Narada illustrated his point by reciting the story of Sunda and Upasunda. Sunda and Upasunda were brothers of the race of Asuras. They were unconquerable heroes and famously loyal to each other. They shared their kingdom, their house, and even slept in the same bed. As you might recall, the Asuras are the bad guys 
who warred with the gods or devas for control of the amrit, the nectar of immortality. This particular pair of asuras were of princely blood, and while still young had gone to the Vindhya mountains and practiced awesome austerities. The brothers starved themselves, stood on the tips of their toes, arms upraised, never blinking, and offered pieces of their own flesh to the fire. The immensity of their austerities was so powerful that the mountains began to smoke like volcanoes. In this age, spiritual power was largely transactional. Regardless of one's outlook or motivations, if you practice certain mortifications, you earn spiritual power in return. The mortifications of these two brothers were so great that the devas were genuinely terrified of the power they might attain. The gods tried all sorts of tricks and illusions to distract or tempt the brothers away from their practices, but to no avail. Finally, the grandfather of the gods, usually known as Brahma, was compelled to visit Sunda and Upasunda. Grandfather offered them any boon short of immortality itself. The brothers greeted Grandfather and asked for mastery of all the arts of war, both physical and magical, plus that no one might be able to kill them. Grandfather said that he could grant them anything except immortality, so they modified the request, asking that no one could harm them except for themselves. Grandfather granted them their wish, and the brothers quit their mortifications and set out to conquer the universe. Along with their Daitya allies, the Asura brothers flew to Devaloka, the realm of the gods. The gods themselves fled heaven from fear of the brothers and took shelter in the realm of Brahma. After thoroughly overrunning heaven, the brothers defeated the snake people, the sea creatures, and the barbarian races. Then the Asuras turned to attack the primary source of the gods' power, the numerous rishis who spend their lives praying and sacrificing to the gods. The brothers swept through the hermitages and ashrams, killing every Brahmin priest and seer. The rishis' curses were powerless to stop their onslaught. Many rishis died and the rest went into hiding. The brothers then used their magic to hunt down the hiding rishis and nearly exterminated them all. Having conquered heaven and devastated the earth, the brothers set up their base at Kurukshetra. Despite all this destruction, there still remained a class of rishis who remained unaffected. These were the divine rishis, such as the beam drinkers, the unborn ones, the undistracted, and the fire wombs. These great seers went to the grandfather and beseeched him for aid. Grandfather pondered this for a while and then instructed the Devarishi Vishvakarman to create a woman, an apsara of great beauty. Vishvakarman then took up a pile of precious jewels and transformed them into an exquisitely beautiful woman. She was named Tilotama and Grandfather instructed her, telling her to go to the demon brothers and seduce them to make them quarrel with each other. Tilotama bowed to Grandfather and then circumambulated the gods respectfully. Her beauty was so great that the gods lost their composure and turned their heads to watch her as she walked. Only Indra and Lord Stanu attempted to keep their gaze forward, but as she walked to the side and behind Indra, red eyes began popping out of his head to keep staring at her, which is why Indra is called the Thousand-Eyed. As for Lord Stanu, a new face appeared on each side and at the back of his head, so that he now faces the four directions at all times. Stanu is also called Mahadev or Shiva. Narada continued with his tale. The brothers Sunda and Upasunda had brought all three worlds under their sway. Having rested after their great exertions, the two demons then dedicated their efforts to enjoying their conquests as much as possible. Their slaves constructed numerous palaces and gardens, and the brothers gave themselves up to women, drink, and feasting, passing their time like immortals in the pursuit of pleasure. 
as the brothers were entertaining themselves in a pleasure garden with a legion of dancing girls till otama came by clad in only a single sheet of red silk that exposed all her charms plucking wild flowers along the way the two brothers had by now become so accustomed to taking whatever they wanted that they each took Tilotama by one hand to carry her off. Sunda ordered Upasunda to let go of her, because she was his sister-in-law and should not be touched. Upasunda replied that, to the contrary, she was his wife, and so Sunda should leave off. Maddened with drink and excess, the brothers attacked each other with maces, and they were soon both dead. All of their demon allies and relatives fled in terror after seeing their indestructible leaders destroyed and the gods came down to Tilotama to congratulate her on her success. Grandfather thanked her and granted her the boon that she might travel all the worlds like an Aditya, or divine child of the goddess. Having finished his tale, Narada stressed to the Pandavas the danger they might face if they could not share their wife fairly. The brothers all bowed to the sage and made a covenant with each other, that if one of us sets eye on the other when he is sitting with Draupadi, he must live in the forest like a hermit for twelve months. Narada was greatly pleased with this, and soon after, he resumed his wandering and departed. We are told that, because of this compact, made in the presence of the Rishi Narada, no dispute ever arose between the brothers over Draupadi. This oath did, however, have some fateful consequences. At first, things went exceedingly well. The king and his brothers fought wars and made numerous conquests. As was usual at the time, they did not depose their conquered enemies, but only demanded their tribute and subjugation. At this point, we're not told which kingdoms were conquered, nor how many, just that Krishna aided them and other kings were subjugated by the might of their arms. A long time passed until one day, thieves stole the cows belonging to a Brahmin. The Brahmin went to the court of the Pandavas and loudly demanded justice, which is the duty of the Kshatriya caste. He pointed out that a king who takes one-sixth of their subjects' income in taxes, but does not protect them, is the most sinful person in the world. Arjun was the first to hear the Brahmin's complaint, and saying, Never fear, I will recover your property, he went to the armory to get his weapons. Perhaps Yudhishthira had a weapons fetish, or maybe they stored their sex toys in the armory. Perhaps it was just a spur-of-the-moment thing, but Yudhishthira was in the weapons room with Draupadi. Faced with the choice whether to shirk his dharma or to infringe on his oath, Arjun chose the lesser of the two evils. He entered the chamber, grabbed his weapons, and took the king's leave. Then he set off to recover the Brahmin's property. It didn't take long for Arjun to capture the bandits and return the cattle, to the appreciation and applause of all the people. On his return, Arjun went before his brother the king and asked him to impose his sentence, saying, Assign me my vow. I have violated the covenant by looking at you. I shall go and live in the forest. Yudhishthira, called Dharmaraj, was saddened and tried to work out a loophole, forgiving his brother and telling him that it was no crime if a younger brother intrudes on his elder brother, only the other way around. But Arjun was adamant, insisting that they of all people should follow the letter of the law. And so, with the king's consent, Arjun was consecrated as a hermit or pilgrim, and he departed from his brother's kingdom. A number of Brahmins and bards accompanied Arjun as he wandered the forest, eventually making his way to the river Ganges. He followed the river up into the Himalayas to the river's source, Gangotri, visiting each of the holy sites along the way, and then followed it back down towards Rishikesh. At one of the fords, where Arjun entered the river to bathe, he was suddenly seized by a snake princess and dragged beneath the water. 
the Naga princess took Arjun to the realm of her father, the Naga king Karavya. Once there, Arjun asked her who she was and why she abducted him. Princess Alupi said she knew all about Arjun's travels and the reason for his vow, but she parsed the meaning of his vow to include servicing her desires. She said that Arjun's vow of celibacy applied only to Draupadi. Besides, if he would not make love to her, she would die. Thus, Arjun's duty was to save her life rather than observe his vow a little too strictly. Arjun was persuaded, and so he stayed the night with the Naga princess. The next morning, he resumed his wandering, giving alms and cattle to the Brahmins he met along the way, following the Ganges eastward toward the sea. Arjun visited every sacred ford and hermitage along his way through the eastern kingdoms of Anga, Vanga, and Kalinga, giving largesse at every stop. He eventually reached the eastern sea, presumably in the region of Bengal. Having reached the coast, Arjun then turned southward and followed the coastline until he arrived at the kingdom of Manipur. The king of Manipur was named Chitravahan, and he had a beautiful daughter, Chichangada. As soon as Arjun laid eyes on the princess, he desired her. Arjun made his wishes known to the king, and the king was agreeable enough, but he had one condition. King Chitravahan explained that his ancestor, King Brahmankara, had been childless, and desperately needed an heir. This king practiced extreme austerities until he finally got Shiva's attention. The Lord Shiva granted him a son, but said that his progeny would, each generation, have only one child. Since then, each successor had had just a single son, until now, when Chitravahan had just this daughter. Chitravahan had therefore officially declared his daughter to also be his son and heir, and he required her son to remain with him to be heir to the kingdom. This was the condition that was placed in Arjun's proposition. As he was with the Naga princess, Arjun was once again easily convinced. He gave his promise and took the girl and stayed with her in that kingdom for three months, leaving another little Arjun behind. Arjun then moved on, continuing his pilgrimage southward along India's eastern coastline. He visited numerous sacred fords as he went. He did notice, however, that five of the most sacred fords had been abandoned by the hermits and priests. Arjun asked around and was told that these fords were each inhabited by a vicious crocodile that will kill anyone who tried to stay there. This was just the kind of adventure Arjun was made for, so he went straight to the first of the five fords and dove into the river. As soon as Arjun entered the water, he was seized by a giant crocodile and pulled deep into the water. Arjun fought back, however, and soon had the upper hand. He grappled the crocodile and pulled it onto the shore. When the beast was pulled free of the water, it suddenly transformed itself into a stunningly beautiful woman. Arjun was surprised and delighted at his discovery. Smiling, he asked her, Who are you? What sin have you committed to end up a predator of the deep? The damsel replied, I am, O mighty armed one, an apsara named Varga, and was once consort to the heavenly treasurer Kuvera. I have four other companions, all handsome and capable of traveling anywhere at will. Once, on our way to see Kuvera, we came across a Brahmin observing rigid vows. His austerities made the whole forest glow. Seeing his devotion and beauty, we decided to interrupt his meditations. We began to sing and smile and try to tempt him, but this Brahmin was unmoved by our looks. He grew annoyed and cursed us to prowl the waters as crocodiles for one hundred years. The Apsara then went on to describe how she and her friends tried to propitiate him, begging his forgiveness, but he was unmoved. The Brahmin suggested that they should just be happy with their sentence, that it was only limited to one hundred years. 
but he also told them that they would be rescued by an exalted individual. Thus, the five beauties entered the sacred waters and fed on holy men until this day when Arjun came to rescue them. Varga then urged Arjun to proceed to the next four sacred fords and rescue her friends. And so, Arjun dove into each of the remaining fords, wrestled out the crocodiles, and freed them from their curse. All this wrestling with Apsaras must have stirred up some urges, because Arjun then decided he would like to see his lover Chitrangada back in Manipur. When he got there, he discovered that the princess had borne him a son, who was now king. His name was Babruvahan. After staying there a while, Arjun departed. This time he headed west, to the west coast of India, again visiting all the holy sites as he went. While Arjun was in the southwestern country of Prabhasa, Krishna got news that his cousin was in the area. So he headed down to Prabhasa to meet him. The Mahabharata says, And it was in Prabhasa that Krishna and the Pandava saw each other again. They embraced each other and asked about each other's health and sat down in the forest, the good friends who were the seers Nar and Narayan. Thus, the two friends hung out and got caught up with each other's affairs. Arjun explained why he was off touring the holy sites of India. Then Krishna invited his cousin to stay a while at the city of Dwarka, where he was given a hero's welcome. Arjun stayed in Dwarka, living in Krishna's palace for some time, until all the nobles of the city left for Mount Raivataka for a religious festival. All of Krishna's relatives were there, including a drunken Balram, King Ugrasena, and Krishna's sister, Supadra. While strolling around the encampment, Arjun happened to catch a glimpse of Supadra, and he was smitten with desire for her. Krishna noticed this change in his friend and encouraged him. Krishna pointed out that the traditional arrangement for Kshatriyas was the bride's self-choice, or Swayamvara. He warned Arjun that this was risky, since a woman's desires were unpredictable. So instead, he recommended that Arjun resort to the warrior's right, which was outright abduction. Arjun agreed to this and quickly sent off a messenger to his elder brother, the king in Indraprastha. After some days, he received his brother's blessing, and Arjun and Krishna plotted his next move. Using a swift chariot provided by Krishna, Arjun donned his armor, and early the next morning, when the girl was visiting a shrine, Arjun rode up and pulled Supadra onto his chariot and rode off. News of the abduction passed quickly to the court of Ugrasena, and the Vrishni warriors began clamoring for war. Balaram silenced the crowd, saying, We have not yet heard from Krishna. Let him first tell us his plans. Hearing this, the crowd of nobles settled down in agreement. Then Balaram turned to Krishna and asked, Why are you just sitting here, and why do you look on without saying anything? It was because of you that we welcomed Arjun, the Parta. He has shown his contempt for us and his disregard for you. Today I alone shall rid the earth of the Karavas, for I cannot forbear Arjun's crime. The crowd of warriors all thundered their applause and support for Balaram. Krishna then made his case for Arjun. Gudakesha has shown us superior honor. The Partha knows that you are not greedy for riches, and he also judged that he could not win at Swayamvar. Who would approve of giving the girl away as if she were cattle? I believe Arjun saw all of these difficulties, and hence abducted the girl lawfully. The alliance is a proper one. Who would not want Arjun, the son of the daughter of Kunti Boja, born in the lineage of Bharata and the great-spirited Shantanu? Nor do I see anyone who could vanquish the Partha. He is a nimble archer. Who could match him? Rather, run after Dhananjaya and cheerfully welcome his return. This is my final opinion. If Arjun were to return to his own city after defeating us, 
our fame would be lost instantly. But there is no defeat in diplomacy. After stating his case, Krishna's cousins and countrymen were all persuaded, and a wedding party was sent out to fetch Arjun and his bride so they could celebrate their nuptials in Dwarka. This little episode is an almost perfect example of how Krishna manipulates events to serve his interests in the Mahabharata. Taken at face value, it would seem like the story was about Arjun falling in love and then taking matters into his own hands, abducting Supadra. But if you keep your eye on Krishna, you'll notice that he was there from start to finish, taking Arjun to a spot where he would see Subhadra, suggesting the mode of betrothal, providing the chariot and horses, and finally convincing the Vrishnis not to fight. We'll see much more of Krishna's manipulations as the story progresses. Duryodhana's mother, Gandhari, will eventually catch on to Krishna's tricks, and will curse him for the crucial role he played in keeping both sides on the road to war. There's one other detail that comes from the Bhagavata Purana about this episode with Arjun and Supadra. The Bhagavata Purana also has a story, but it says the reason Arjun had to abduct Supadra was not because she couldn't be relied on to choose him in a swayamvara. Rather, it says that Balram had already promised her to the wicked Duryodhana. The TV series also elaborates on this detail and says that the promise was extracted from Balram when Duryodhana was studying mace warfare with him. At the point when Duryodhana effectively graduated from his training, Balram offered his student a boon. Duryodhana requested Supadra's hand in marriage, and Balram agreed. Balram does seem to have a soft spot for the Kauravas, and having Arjun subvert his wishes regarding Supadra's marriage probably didn't help increase his sympathy for the Pandavas. Thus, Arjun stayed with his new bride at Dwarka until his twelve-month period of exile was over and then he finally returned home, bringing his new bride along to meet her in-laws. When Arjun got back to Indraprastha, Draupadi was not at all happy with the carousing he'd been up to while he was away. When he went to greet her, Draupadi sent him away, saying, Go back to your woman, son of Kunti. And there was nothing Arjun could do to pacify her. Supadra, caught in the middle of this marital spat, decided to humble herself before the senior wife. Supadra changed out of her princely clothes and exchanged them for the clothes of a serving girl. She then presented herself to Draupadi as her slave. Draupadi, moved by the girl's modesty, embraced her as her new co-wife and said, At least let your husband have no rivals. Kunti and her sons were all delighted that Draupadi had now accepted Arjun's fate accompli. Not long after, Krishna and Balram returned to Indraprastha with a huge wedding party and bearing mountains of treasure as gifts for the bride and groom and for their hosts. Fabulous treasure and riches were exchanged, and great festivities were held to celebrate the marriage alliance. After some time, Balram and his fellows returned home, while Krishna stayed on, enjoying the delights of Indraprastha and going on hunts with Arjun. In time, Supadra had a son. This boy was destined to be a great warrior. In fact, he will be the greatest tragic hero of the story. His name was Abhimanyu. It was during these years that Draupadi also gave birth to five sons, each one fathered by each of her husbands, Pratyavindya by Yudhishthira, Suttasoma by Bhima, Shrutakarman by Arjun, Satanika by Nakula, and Shrutasena by Sahadev. Each child was born exactly one year apart. These were the salad days for the Pandavas. They were firmly established in their kingdom, their subjects living in peace and justice, while the warrior princes increasingly brought neighboring kings under their sway. One day, Krishna suggested that they all go to the riverside and enjoy the waters. 
so the whole court picked up and moved to some mansions lining the Yamuna River. While the women and children played games in the water and in the woods, Krishna and Arjun sat off to the side, discussing war and politics. As they sat there, a Brahmin as tall as a tree and glowing with a molten gold color presented himself before the two friends. With matted dreadlocks and dressed in rags, he resembled the rising sun. Recognizing the divine power in this figure, Arjun and Krishna stood up and awaited the Brahmin's command. The Brahmin addressed the pair, saying, Ye who are staying so near the Kandava forest are the foremost heroes on earth. I am a voracious Brahmin that always eats. I solicit you to please me by giving me enough food. The friends asked him, Tell us what food you would like, and we will certainly endeavor to gratify you. The Brahmin replied, I do not eat food. I am Agni, the god of fire, and the Kandava forest is what I desire. Agni explained that he tried burning the forest before, but that it and its inhabitants were protected by Indra. So whenever a fire was started, Indra would instantly put it out with the rain shower. The Brahmin concluded, saying, This forest is the food I have chosen. You are fully familiar with weapons. You shall stop any and all creatures and clouds on all sides. Arjun agreed to help, but he also took advantage of the situation. He pointed out that he and Krishna were certainly capable of performing the service, but he lacked the weapons sufficient for the job. He had no bow strong enough and no means of carrying the number of arrows he would need. He pressed his demands, requiring divine horses and a chariot that thundered like the clouds and as bright as the sun. He also pointed out that Krishna would need some cool new weapons too. The fire god obliged, giving Arjun a bow and an inexhaustible quiver. This was the famous Gandiva bow, which is the most treasured and powerful bow ever used by a mortal. Agni also delivered up a chariot drawn by divine Gandharva horses and flying the banner of a monkey. As for Krishna, he was given the famous Sudarshana discus, the magical frisbee-like weapon you always see in pictures of Krishna. Now properly armed, Agni set fire to the Kandava forest while Krishna and Arjun slaughtered any beast that tried to escape the flames. The animals died in droves, their screams and cries reaching up to heaven where the gods discovered what was happening and went straight to Indra to report the news. After various gods went running to Indra, reporting on the vast holocaust, Indra felt he had to do something. So he sent a great thunderstorm over the forest and started to rain down sheets and floods of rain. But by now the fire was so hot that the rain was ineffectual. The water simply evaporated before it reached the ground. Indra then redoubled his attack, sending great floods of rainwater down at the fire. That was when Arjun stepped in, firing volleys of arrows at the rain clouds and driving them back. He covered the entire forest on every side with his arrows. Not a single creature could escape. It so happened that the Kandava forest was the home of Takshaka, king of the snakes. The same Takshaka who killed Arjun's grandson, King Parikshit. Takshaka survived this fire because he wasn't home that day. For whatever reason, he was at the future battlefield of Kurukshetra. Much of his family, however, were at home in the forest, including his eldest son, Ashvasena. Try as he might, Ashvasena could not get past Arjun's arrows. In desperation, his mother tried to save him by swallowing him, but as he was halfway down her throat, Arjun's arrow took off her head. Somehow, Ashvasena survived all this, and Indra found an opportunity to rescue the snake, bearing him aloft in a gust of wind. Angry to see his prey escaping, Arjun, Krishna, and Agni all cursed the snake, saying, You shall never find shelter. 
Arjun then enchanted one of his arrows and fired it up into Indra's rain clouds. The potent magic of that arrow dried up all the rain clouds and debilitated Indra's attack. The fire then flared up brighter and hotter than before. Indra's allies, the eagle Garudas, and hordes of snakes then attacked the pair of warriors, but they were sliced to pieces by their arrows. Finally, a last defense was organized by the forest dwellers, consisting of gods, Gandharvas, Yakshas, Rakshasas, snakes, Daityas, and Danavas. Indra himself led the assault, mounted on his white elephant and bearing a thunderbolt. The ranks of the gods included Yama, Lord of Death, Kuvera, the God of Wealth, Varuna, Shiva, the Ashvins, Rudras, and Maruts, all ablaze in anger and glory, and ready to kill Krishna and Arjun. The battle escalated until it resembled the end of times. Krishna and Arjun were surrounded on all sides by the most powerful gods in the universe, and held them all at bay. Indra then picked up the tall peak of Mount Mandara and threw it at Arjun, but Arjun's arrows were able to shatter the mountain into dust. The shower of debris then fell onto the forest, killing even more of its creatures. Krishna then started hurling his discus like a murderous frisbee into the mass of forest creatures, slicing them up into pieces. By now, even the gods began to realize that they would not accomplish their mission. They began looking over their shoulders for a means of retreat. As the gods backed away, a disembodied voice addressed Indra. It said, Your friend, the great snake Takshaka, is not here. He has gone to the field of the Kurus. You cannot defeat Vasudeva and Arjun when they stand fast at war. Therefore, depart from here and watch the destruction of the Kandava forest, which has been ordained. Hearing this, and knowing that he could not succeed, Indra, lord of the immortals, departed for heaven. And when they saw the king of the gods leaving with his hosts, Krishna and Arjun roared like lions in their triumph. The pair then finished their business unhindered, dispatching the remnants of the forest creatures. Eyes blazing, tongue blazing, his big wide-open maw blazing, the upright hair blazing, drinking up the fat with orange eyes, the sacrificial fire feasted on the elixir that Krishna and Arjun had fetched, and became happy, sated, and supremely blissful. Suddenly, from out of the fire flew an asura, named Maya. Krishna spotted him and took aim with his discus, while Agni directed his flames. Maya called out to Arjun to save him. Hearing this frightened voice, Arjun replied, Have no fear. Seeing that Maya had placed himself under Arjun's protection, Krishna and Agni both allowed him to live. The great fire and battle lasted six days, and by the end, only the few creatures who were excused by Agni and the snake Ashvasena survived. The fire god was wholly sated and thanked the pair of warriors, and offered them each a boon. Arjun requested more divine weapons, which Agni granted him, but told him he would receive these weapons in due time. Krishna only asked for Arjun's eternal friendship, which Agni happily granted him. Having eaten flesh and drunk fat and blood, supreme joy seized him, and he spoke to the pair. You have sated me to fullness of pleasure. I dismiss you now, heroes. Go where you please. Arjun, Vasudev, and Maya took leave of the great spirited fire, and all three wandered about and sat down on the lovely river bank. The critical edition doesn't really offer an explanation for why Agni wanted so badly to burn down that forest. We also don't get much of an explanation why Indra and Takshaka are such good buddies. The Ganguli translation, based on the Bombay edition of the Mahabharata, does provide some explanation. In that version, we are told of a king who obsessively takes on bigger and more ambitious sacrifices, up to the point where he has butter fed into a sacrificial flame non-stop for twelve whole years. 
By the end of this offering, Agni had consumed so much butter that he turned a sickly green color and lost his heat. The fire god went to Brahma for a cure, and Brahma told him he would need to consume the Kandava forest to clean himself out. So that does it for book one. Only 17 more books to go. Next episode, Maya gets put to work building a fabulous new palace for her heroes. Krishna gives the Pandavas imperial ambitions, and Jarasan enters the story once again. Thanks for listening. <laughs>